If this is so important, if it's so critical to get feedback from these different angles, then enabling people to do that better instead of just saying like, hey, go figure it out, seems really important. I mean, if they're gonna do it anyway, and if we want them to do it, then giving them a little toolbox, giving them a set of practices, a set of principles, hey, maybe don't ask people to predict, you know, what they're gonna do in the future, ask them what they did yesterday, or ask them what they, you know, would do next with this application. I don't think that's that big of a stretch. Um, and I, you know, I would join you in hoping that uh, this gets easier and better to do at most organizations, because I, I, th I think we've all experienced our share of, do they like ask anybody about this experience? Did, did anybody, anybody outside the team designing this look at this thing and tell them what it was like? Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. Hi, listeners. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. It's crazy for me to hear these words come out of my mouth, but this is our 50th episode, and I just want to say thank you. Thanks for supporting us and listening to the Human Insight Podcast. For this milestone episode, we interviewed Andrew Hogan, who leads insights and analysis at Figma. Please note that this interview was recorded before the recent news that Adobe plans to acquire Figma. Thanks and on to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO of User Testing. And today we're really excited to have Andrew Hogan joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Andrew leads insights and analysis at Figma, and he was a principal analyst at Forrester, where he authored and co-authored over 50 Forrester reports about design, UX, CX, and the design industry. We're really excited to have you here, Andrew. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get we get into the thick of it, um, you're a big basketball fan uh, and a big fan of Golden State Warriors. And and while there may be a big fan base, there are also some people that aren't fans at all. No, um, I guess no way. Division of lovers and haters of the uh, of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, we wanted to actually dig into this a bit more, so we asked some of our uh, user testing contributors, why they either loved or hated the Warriors. So let's listen to some of what they had to say. Why do I think some people either love the Warriors, Steph Curry and Draymond Green, or hate them? Love them because they're good um, and hate them also because they're good. Well, in my opinion, even though I'm not a Warriors fan, the Warriors are one of the greatest NBA dynasties of all time. Uh, well, people like to disrespect them because they've just been so dominant for so long, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't really agree that they're quite overrated either because, I mean, quite frankly, they put the numbers up every other year. So, and, you know, they they got a system that works, in my opinion. Um, I, I notice, like, every new player they come, they bring in, you know, it's not like they're just really just bench warmers, you know? They kind of really do make sure their players, like, you know, get the work done whether you like hate or like steph curry or draymond green you have to accept that they are like really good like they're like top of their game 
So there's really no reason to like hate them for that or disrespect them for that. But people use them being overrated as an excuse to like hate them. Well, I I mean, some people just like to see winners lose. So it's like the Patriots either love them or hate them when Brady was on there. So, I mean, so either love the Warriors or hate the Warriors. I would say I don't like the Warriors, but I don't hate them. But I want a new team to win the finals and become the next stacked team like the Warriors are right now. For other people, um, myself included, definitely feel like, oh, it's the Warriors again. Steph Curry, he's, 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 he's a beast. He's, I don't know. He's three-pointer. He's insane. It's every clutch shot. He's one of the best players to ever play the game. He's definitely not underrated. I feel like people hate on him because of how um, hyped up he, he is. But he's actually like he's actually really good. So um, he makes his shots, and he literally carried like an entire game during the finals. So I don't think he's overrated at all. They are, they're a fun team to watch. They really are. And Steph Curry is a very likable player, uh, very relatable. People hate them because of their dominance or they love them because of their dominance. So it's a double-edged sword, I guess you could say. When it comes to ball, I'm not very critical. Um, I'm personally a Knicks fan. So it's like, I already know what it is to be disappointed and all this stuff. So like, I'm, I take it easy when it comes to ball these days. All right. Super interesting to hear the reasoning behind why people either love or hate the Warriors. I know you're a lover of the Warriors. Could you empathize with any of the haters? Yeah, I mean, of course. Like, you know, people people want to see change. They want to see somebody new on top. They want to see some new things. I, I was surprised nobody said anything about shimmying the salary cap or being light years ahead and their the ownership quotes. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I get it. I, I get I get some of the frustration. Winning does that. Yeah, I mean, uh, as someone based in the Boston area, I think people have plenty of opinions about teams like the Patriots um, and 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 the Celtics. I mean, if we want to go the, the the Boston route, so uh, it'd be fun to to dig into that some more. But it is, I mean, sports is such an emotionally charged thing. Uh, it's it's fascinating to 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 hear people comment on it. I, I think one of the most interesting things is to think about it as you know soap operas for people who aren't culturally allowed to watch soap operas, you know, what's happening in the off season, which character is doing what. And uh, Boston has certainly had its share of characters. The Warriors have their share of characters. It's pretty cool to think about it that way. Yeah, you're totally right. You're making me feel um, like, you know, better about some of the TV shows that I might be watching that I probably should be doing other things with my time. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same thing. It's all the it same. It sure is. Um, awesome. So, you know, you've been in the design space for your entire career. Um, so would love for you to spend a little time telling us a bit more about yourself, you know, the evolution of your career and, and what you're up to at Figma these days. Yeah. So the, the place where it started is actually with mobile apps and trying to get, you know, help, help companies build mobile apps that would help them build better relationships with their customers. Um, you know, spend more you know, money with a particular place or uh, understand preferences. And then from there, you kind of get into this like, well, what are we doing? Are we driving immediate sales? Are we building some loyalty? And then you end up in this, you know, CX space of how how loyalty is so essential to business. Um, and then when you think about how to do that well, then all of a sudden you're talking about design. 
and you're talking about how to create something with emotional resonance that helps somebody solve a problem, meet a need, something else like like that. And so that's kind of the progression that I've been on um, throughout the the time that I've spent doing this. Um, and then at Figma, now it's, well, what, what is our amazing community doing? Um, what kinds of things are they building? What do they care about? And what are we learning about what's working really well for them? So we've got done some great research about collaboration. We're doing some great research about the hiring practices of successful companies. And then also, you know, what is it that's happening with design at large? This is a field that, you know, barely existed uh, a couple decades ago. And then now is, you know, seemingly like a major economic force. Um, so it's pretty exciting. So, uh, Andrew, I just wanted to jump in and, and sort of dive into some of that deep understanding. Like you've been in around this space and I'm sure that your expertise and background has come from just, you know, so many years of talking to designers, design leaders, uh, all kinds of folks that collaborate in and around design teams. Uh, it's just a very interesting space that's evolved quite a bit. And so one of the things we wanted to do for this episode was uh, just dive in a little bit with folks that have been in the design space. And so we act, uh, asked a bunch of designers uh, using user testing to give us some feedback uh, on sort of what's happened over the last decade or so in the space and, and how's it evolved. So let's listen to that uh, and hear what they have to say, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Uh, I mean, a lot has changed. Obviously, uh, I think um, like 10 years ago, we, we used to think that uh, design strictly refers to uh, you know, something you can see. Um, but fast forward to 10 years later, today I think design is kind of like all-encompassing uh, kind of discipline that is involved in literally every aspect of a, a product and service. It was not more much concerned about the user experience because, in fact, such term UX is uh, something relatively recent. So, and now it's something that it's core, right, to to websites and to businesses. So putting yourself in the shoes of the customer, the user, and the market at large, and you know, doing user research and uh, conducting interviews. In the last 10 years or so, what is your favorite new tool or technology that you regularly use to do your job? Um, so I, I, I think Figma, like, I don't know if that's like, I don't know when Figma started. I, I started using it a couple of years ago, and I think it's like an excellent col collaborative tool. Um, something like Figma, uh, I think without these tools, it will be really time consuming if we, if we were to do it on the, uh, like manually on the um, whiteboard or like on the paper, which is great exercise, but to kind of, you know, have like a collaborative tool. Uh, just so everybody can be on the same page and you can make the uh, the design process a lot more streamlined and easier. If you would look into the future, how will design change in the next 10 years? I think you'd have it even more simplified and you'd be working with more algorithms to create the perfect design. There'd be more technology involved and less human thought going into it. So if you want something, it will just kind of do it for you. It will just be part of the uh, whatever is trending uh, in terms in terms of technology like AI or V like AI, AR and VR. Everything right now is more like uh, artificial intelligence. Um, if is more like AI and um... the lay person, just the average person, to design things elaborately will become probably more much easier. It's gonna continue. Uh, 
with these user-centric patterns. So it's going to keep on placing the user in the center. I don't know if perhaps it's going to take it to the next level in this regard. Um, also because we there's like this growing uh, trend of, uh, you know, virtual reality. So I don't know if that's somehow going to be more incorporated in like day-to-day -day experiences with websites. Um, maybe, maybe not. All right. As we come back from that, uh, I do feel like I should mention that our producer, Nathan, talked about how passionate these folks were when we ran this test and uh, that most folks were even running long on our test and, and really just had amazing uh, things they wanted to share. And so I love when you get to hear from from passionate folks talking about how much stuff has changed. Um, but beyond uh, sort of our enjoyment of, of how much people enjoyed sharing with us, uh, what are some of your thoughts, Andrew, and what resonated with you? I think one of the most fascinating changes is how much more collaborative it's all become. You know, how many more people are involved in a design process and how many more people have to be accommodated within a design process? Uh, it's tough to, you know, get people in a room and kind of like whiteboard, especially in the, the current environment. Um, and so, you know, what are the tools that have to change? Yes, Figma is one of those, but there are many others. Um, and just for them to sort of think about um, who is participating, how important it is and how that shifted is pretty pretty interesting. There's there's some great stories about, you know, lawyers that maybe write some terms and conditions that are a little long, that are maybe have some words in there that, that people don't necessarily uh, uh, follow along with. Um, and then when they see it in the UI, they kind of realize, well, we should we should make some changes. This is going to be a bad experience. And once, you know, as we all know, once people hear from customers, this doesn't work well, then they start to make changes. And then the other fascinating thing in there is how many people mentioned AI and how many people mentioned AI as a, a creative partner and, and seemingly how positive it was. I mean, I didn't see the entirety of the clips. Maybe some of the things that were cut out were, were negativity, but as a, as a partner, as somebody to help be, you know, support creativity, AI has some, some really fascinating um, applications. Andrew, I think what is fascinating to me about what I heard designers talking about and your last point about openness around AI, you know, I think that surprised me because uh, design is a very creative thing and it's a very personal thing. I mean, when you're working for a company, of course, like you're working within con the constraints of the brand and the constraints of maybe what the design system is or the patterns. Um, but to imagine that designers are okay with part of their job being driven or like, you know, guided with AI is just a really, like, I'm surprised by that because I think, I mean, when we think about our customers, right, and researchers who have a craft around this, um, some of the AI really comes in around the analysis piece. But, you know, there, there is there is some of that, um, you know, there's a skill set there that, you know, some don't believe can be replaced by AI. So I just I found that fascinating. I think the key there is replacement. It's not replacement. It is aug augmenting people's creative abilities. And I think that's the the you know, the, the excitement you heard there. The prompt wasn't, you know, what's going to replace you. The prompt was, you know, what are, what are you excited about in, uh, in, in design or what do you see the future of design being like? Um, and it feels, you know, it, it feels really possible that there will be these support systems and these structures similar to the way, you know, we don't lay out 
type and print in the same way. Um, there's, there's tools to help you do that better. There's support. Um, and you know, there will be support to help, um, people create better and, um, uh, support their creative process if they want it. I'm sure there will be some, just like in chess, there are some who really lean on their AI partners. And then there are some where, uh, uh, you know, chess players that don't want to touch, uh, AI support or analysis support. And so I think you'll just see different approaches from different places. And the key is it's not going to replace human ingenuity, human creativity. Um, and, and anybody who says that it will, very skeptical about that actually working out. Yeah, I love the skeptical eye for sure. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting that you brought up uh, was around collaboration and design being more of a collaborative process. I definitely am seeing that as well within our own customer base and even within our teams at user testing and even seeing different roles. Like actually earlier today, I was on a call with one of our engineers and he was talking to me about an idea he had and he pulled up Figma and he starts like showing me the prototype he built. And I'm like, it just sort of like hit me like, oh, engineers working in Figma. I'm like, wow, this is like, this is really fascinating. So of course, then I'm starting going down the path of like, when did you start doing this? He's like, oh yeah, I've had this license for a while and we've got a whole like pattern library we're using. I just pull from that. And I'm like, oh, it makes so much sense. Um, so that is a big change for the industry too. Selfishly, I want to see the same thing happening with uh, customer feedback and user research, but uh, certainly lots of change there. Ab absolutely. And that brings with a lot of things like what's the role clarity, right? When that engineer interacts with a designer who makes the call, um, you know, how do you think about integrating their feedback with customer feedback? But it is amazing to see so many different people, different kinds of roles pick this up. I mean, you know, only a third of the Figma users identify as designers. So two thirds of them are non-designers. And that just tells you something about participation and who is participating now. Yeah. And the, the sort of, you know, you touched a little bit about it in the beginning, but the whole the whole piece of collaboration, like that's such a critical part to the experience of using your product. Um, anybody can get in there and collaborate on the designs and give feedback, even if they're not in there actually making the designs. And I think that that really does help with rallying the team around something. Um, so design changing, really progressing over the last decade plus. Um, I know you've recently been looking into that a bit more and you've published some research uh about our current decade of design. Uh, super fascinating read. Can you talk more about what it means to be in this decade of design and, and some of the key markers of it? Yeah, so the, there's a one big thing to think about is something that we've all identified, right? There are just many more digital interactions. There are many more applications. There are many more services. Um, you know, anyone who's lost a family member recently, you know, you, you did your sort of like end of life, you know, planning, the, the memorial planning, all of that happened through sites and apps. And so everything you're doing is, is going through those same places. Um, and that just means it's even more important to do it well. And so that then sets up this sort of situation where um, there's sort of this, this expectation that these things will also maybe evolve and change. Um, and then there's these new economic models for, you know, subscription um, for, you know, using, uh, uh, thinking about, you know, daily active users, monthly active users and usage based work. So you have these, these sort of big kind of macro changes in how people interact. 
um, and in the ways in which companies you know, make money from those things and, and sort of support them. And then that leads you to being able to make the kinds of updates and changes that push uh, more design. You essentially end up in an iterative loop where you're constantly making things better. There are more designers. Um, it then sort of cascades from there. The, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics actually created a new job recently. It's no longer uh, – digital design is no longer part of development alone. Now it's you know web and digital interface designer. And that new job is kind of a big deal because it's no longer just the way that the developers get things done. It's its, its own discipline. It's its own thing like architecture, um, like uh, uh, graphic design, um, like interior design. All of those things had their own job categories. So for the, the USBLS to do that, it says something about what kinds of changes we're dealing with and, and just how in demand all of this is um, as that job tends to grow. Andrew, as you think about the job growing and the influence of the job growing, and we've talked about how you know more and more people now participate in the design process who maybe aren't designers. And you know, Janelle mentioned we, we see some of those same early trends with user testing of how more people interact with customer feedback and, and what that looks like. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of those things happening in parallel or maybe also, you know, like coding is another example of where simple coding is something a lot of people are getting some background. And my kids go to, uh, you know, they have coding experience in, in eighth grade. So even if they end up being designers or uh, customer researchers, like they might have some coding background. Um, what do you think about sort of all of these things happening in parallel and how do teams do that to, to be able to maybe understand each other more, but also go quickly? Like how do teams work together when everybody has a little bit of experience in everybody else's area? Yeah, so some of uh, Figma's research into collaboration gets into that, and there's like five big behaviors. We did a you know published a study. Um, there's obviously role clarity is really important. Who who has the final call in this? Um, the the team having some level of rapport to be able to give each other feedback, and feedback would be the 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 third thing, um, and then being able to reflect on how well those first three things are working. Um, you know, are, are we giving each other the right feedback? Are we are we clear on roles? Um, are we clear on uh, uh, you know how things are going? Um, and you end up with a set of sort of I don't know what I'd call them like re recursive like self self sort of uh, referential sounds bad, but you know you end up with this sort of ecosystem of how teams work well, um, but it requires effort and thought um, to be able to to effectively to do it. If you just sort of leave it to chance you know, the team will probably end up kind of frustrated and it'll be a big problem. We actually found out that teams that did those behaviors well, um, it was as impactful to them creating a good product as the, you know, clear timelines, clear goals from someone like an Andy, you know, telling the team, here's what I really want you to achieve. These are your metrics. Um, it was as impactful the way that they worked. And things like that just are so powerful for helping kind of, if, if we're all changing how we work, sort of forcing everyone to take a step back and say, well, how, how are we working? How is this going? Yeah, I always felt like uh, when I went from being a developer to a product manager, the acknowledgement that I was maybe not the world's best developer, but it helped that I had a little bit of understanding of how developers worked, helped me communicate in a way where I sort of understood some of the constraints and the things that we're doing and had an appreciation for their work, but at the same time, didn't think I was going to grab a keyboard and start doing their work. And I think that's sort of where this all fits. Like, you know, everybody's sort of understanding design 
understanding customer feedback, bringing their ideas to the table, but also having an appreciation for some of the expertise in play of people who can really do that at a, at a level is, is really valuable. That's such a, that's such a great point. The sort of the, the, sometimes the reflecting on how the experience is going helps you to realize how good somebody else is at something else that is part of that process. And, you know, you, you should point things out, but you, you also maybe should let them write the code, let somebody else, you know, do the bulk of the design work and contribute ideas, contribute feedback, um, all, all of that. Uh, maybe piggybacking a little bit on that, you know, Andrew, um, we've been talking to some shared customers, um, folks who use both user testing and Figma. And I have noticed, uh, a, you know, some level of, you know, what, I mean, I guess to, to reel it back a little bit, when I talk to, cause I primarily talk to teams, um, who, are trying to figure out how to build more customer feedback into their product development process or whatever process they're involved in. And what they've recognized is that they can't take on all of this on their own. They have to actually bring the team along. And a lot of times the people that they're bringing along are designers. So when when you're talking to, to your customers, and it's interesting, you mentioned only a third of the, your users are have the design title in them. Um, but when you're talking to like your, your typical user at Figma, are they also telling you that, you know, they're doing some design, but they're also getting feedback and, and iterating on it on their own as a designer? Like, are you hearing more of that than maybe you have in the past? I mean, certainly the, so there's a few different cultures within design. There's sort of like an open design culture. You know, we're going to share things and we're going to get feedback and it's not my idea. It's our idea. Um, and then there's a sort of more closed, like, this is my thing. I'm going to come up with this and it's going to be the best thing. And no one will have sort of, you know, will have come up with anything better. And I think we can all think of different companies that kind of represent those kinds of perspectives. Um, but when you really think about the companies that are successful, they're certainly still getting lots of feedback from different angles, whether it's from customers, whether it's from each other, um, you know, whether it's uh, uh, from, you know, a, a separate team within their organization. Um, and those teams seem to be doing, you know, really good, strong work. Um, and those teams seem to be also maybe happier um, because they're having these ongoing conversations, um, as long as they can get clarity about who makes the final call, because that is certainly something that comes up when people sort of spin around in circles, getting feedback, different kinds of opinions that maybe aren't fully grounded. Um, that seems to be really frustrating for teams. Um, and somebody at the end has to say, this is the thing we're doing. This is what we're shipping. And then let's, you know, let's move on. Let's reflect later. I, I think that's quite insightful. So, uh, maybe to, piggyback off of that insight, you know, you've been exposed to what I would say are some of the best and most innovative design teams at places like Forrester and certainly at Figma. Um, what are the sort of best practices you see across the industry, um, especially as it pertains to sort of big global or kind of enterprise level organizations? So obviously on this podcast, uh, we care a lot about feedback. Feedback is big. I've talked a lot about feedback um, and then feedback from customers and testing with customers is, is really big. Getting, getting input along the way, getting input as you're building. You don't have to do the thing that they say, but certainly hearing the thing that they say is really valuable and seems to, to set teams apart. Um, the other major trend that's happened is design systems. 
um, and the rise of design systems and their importance. We haven't talked that much about that on on this, you know, in this conversation. Um, but you know, I think in my time at Forrester, it was you know like seventy percent adoption of design systems, um, and the um, the ability for developers and designers to work better together through a design system is also really important. Um, I know there's some data from Forrester about the speed of development um, when there is a design system. I think it's like 30% faster for developers um, to do their work. Um, and that can it can even be bigger um, depending on the situation. So I think there's there's a feedback component, there's a design systems component, and then there's also this realization that design can impact things at a like a business level. You know, call it big D design or business design or whatever you want to call it. But just having the sort of respect that it's not just about moving pixels, it's also about solving business problems um, is, a, is a major component. Um, I, I, you know, we, we did some analysis on um, recent earnings calls for some of the biggest banks and retailers in, in Q1 of 2022. Um, and, you know, we saw some numbers at 16 out of 20. Um, uh, of those companies mentioned intuitive, seamless, you know, something along those lines. And, you know, maybe you as a CEO could tell me, maybe don't pay as much attention to those earnings calls and what, what they say on them. Um, but uh, to, to someone, you know, reading between the lines, I think if you were at a company that highlighted your, you know, redesign of an app on an earnings call and said, this is an important thing that we're doing and we've fallen behind, we need to step up and this is what we're doing. That's just such a sign of respect um, and uh, probably gives a huge boost to that design team, too, uh, for the work that they're doing. I agree. I think to your point at the very beginning of your answer, it sort of highlights that focus on understanding your customers, right? Being able to highlight that listening and then the reaction and the, and the design work that goes behind it. I think it's really powerful. That's a, that's a great point. And great call out on the design systems, too. I feel like we, we uh, your, to your point, haven't, um, we haven't touched on that. I think that that is, you know, I mean, like I was saying today earlier on my call with the engineer, like he was using the design system mm -hmm. to create the design, right? And it's like, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, p people think I'm kind of crazy when I say this, but I also believe that there is a, um, like a similar to, to how companies have design systems, they also should have like research systems or user feedback systems or these like componentized uh, sort of approaches within the process that sort of slot in to what to what you're working on. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I'm usually the one the one with the out there ideas um, that I guess I'm kind of allowed to have them, but I, I see that someday as being part of. Um, how research evolves and customer feedback evolves. I don't think it's that out there because I think if if this is so important, if it's so critical to get feedback from these different angles, then enabling people to do that better instead of just saying like, hey, go figure it out, seems really important. I mean, if they're going to do it anyway, and if we want them to do it, then giving them a little toolbox, giving them a set of practices, a set of principles, hey, maybe don't ask people to predict you know, what they're going to do in the future, ask them what they did yesterday. Or ask him what they, you know, would do next with this application. I don't think that's that big of a stretch, um, and I, you know, I would join you in hoping that uh, this gets easier and better to do at most organizations. Because I, I, I think we've all experienced our share of. Do they like ask anybody about this experience? Did, they, did anybody, anybody outside the team designing this, look at this thing and tell them what it was like? So anyway, validation for your idea.
Yeah, thank you. We actually were just talking about this internally about it's like it's 2022 and we still live in a world where experiences that are created and delivered never get feedback from customers before they go live. Like you've got everything else baked into the process, right? Design has come such a long way. I mean, does, you know, it, that used to not be a thing that fit into sort of every uh, cycle or every release, but that that is pretty standard at this point. You know, we talk about the QA process that weaved in at the end. Um, you know, th there's all of these like steps and all of these things that happen, but like programmatically across the board, the customer is not pulled into that process, generally speaking. And that is wild to me. Yeah, it's like to your point, Janelle, imagine shipping the product, not having QA'd it. We would never do that anymore. But yet, to your point, Andrew, we sometimes ship it and think nobody outside of the engineering team has ever used this thing. Um, sort of fascinating. Yeah. All right. We're going to flip over to the lightning question. So these are the questions that we ask um, every guest that comes on the podcast. Um, so tell us, uh, what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? Orbiting the Giant Hairball. That is a book that I would recommend everybody who wants to think about what they do at work, uh, how they might do something different in the future, which we should all sort of be learning, changing, growing. Um, and then also maybe anybody who's ever been frustrated by trying to make changes that you think should happen. Um, it's a book by a former Hallmark designer. Um, and rose to sort of a creative management position there and, you know, has done lots of creative consulting about how to have responsible creativity within a corporate environment and not go crazy trying to do it. So I recommend anybody uh, that wants to grow and change uh, and uh, has tried to make change within an organization, read that book. All right. Awesome. Uh, Nathan's giving me mic positioning advice visually. Sorry for, for that. Okay. So um, what's one piece of advice that you'd give someone who's trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? Try it a little bit. Try to get some feedback. Pilot it. It sounds really dumb and basic and like, well, of course. But the truth is that sometimes people can't imagine how you would get feedback without, you know, totally derailing the project. They can't imagine, you know, how um, useful it could be to have somebody tell them something about something they've spent so much time on. And they're spending so much energy trying to figure out how to, you know, wrangle internal stakeholders that they can't imagine thinking further about, you know, where else they could go. So trying it a little bit, piling a little bit, being sort of compassionate about this is another step, this is another thing. Um, and then have people reflect on the experience afterwards and like after the project, you know, ships or maybe after there's some sort of milestone. Um, and then, you know, that technique will then probably make them realize, hey, this person said this thing and it was really helpful. It helped us make this decision. Um, you know, I just I think I think it's easy to set up the biggest, most perfect process in the world or to, to say that you're going to do that. And. Sometimes that's not what the situation calls for. Sometimes it's to just do it a little bit. Yeah, totally. I think some of the biggest, um, you know, challenges that I've seen with teams that are really eager to do a better job of listening to customers is that they do come up with this big process that they want to deploy across everything. And your advice on just like starting small, do a little thing, some little at a time. 
Um, it does sound like super obvious, but so important, especially when you're in a culture that doesn't do this regularly. Um, you will fail if you try to deploy a massive customer listening program overnight. And then you have to tell people about it. That's the other thing. You can't forget the yeah. like evangelize. This is the thing we did this and it worked and here's what we learned. And um, so that's, that's the sort of second component, do the small thing and then tell everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you've spent a ton of time looking at design, being part of the design uh, field. When you think about the future of design, you know, what are you, what are you most excited about? I am so excited to see what people make next. And I feel like humans, when they get tools in their hands, do these great things and they get new tools all the time and the tools, you know, change all the time. Um, and to watch what people do and what they think of and how they get creative and how they build what they're thinking about. Um, I just fascinated to see how that'll play out. Um, the other thing that I'm really excited about is the explosion of diversity of people coming from really different backgrounds to design, um, which was, you know, a, a pretty homogenous group 20, 20 years ago. Um, and it's certainly talked about as a homogenous group, whether it really was or not. Um, and then now for there to be so many groups, so many different kinds of people coming into it, that's pretty fascinating, especially when you combine it with that first point. If you have new people with new ideas building new kinds of things, that's going to be pretty cool. And those are the things that I get really excited about. And that's part of why I'm so excited about Figma, because that's what we're trying to do. I love it. Yeah, that is, uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't taken a step back and thought about that uh, in terms of the having, you know, different people with different perspectives all contributing to the design process. And then you add to that sort of the fuel of companies really putting design at the forefront and really valuing it and and putting it, you know, it is a strategic differentiator. Things start to get really interesting when you combine those those two things together. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. This was fascinating. Love to uh, hear a ton about the design industry, your background, what, what you're learning. Love your role at Figma. Um, and and thanks, thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast at usertesting.com. Thanks. 